You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Today, I want to welcome Michael Thomas to the show. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great, Jen. Good. So where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Roswell, Georgia. Ooh, and how is the weather in Roswell, Georgia right now? It's um, about 55, 60, really good running weather, actually. Oh, so nice. We talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and I think we were at like 13 degrees here in the Detroit area, and you were in the 30s somewhere. So I think I made yes. you feel a little better about that cold weather then, didn't I? <laughs> I think it's, it's always good to have that reminder uh, that there are other people that are suffering a little bit more. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Michael, you and I met on Instagram. I was a fan of your photography. And so I would like to learn more about you as a photographer. When did you begin this career in photography? It was three years ago. I went on, I call it a sabbatical, where I focused on things that I like to do. And I've always liked photography, always. I remember my dad having the camera everywhere we went. I remember him having the movie movie camera with the blinding lights everywhere. I even remember him buying me a, I think it was a Radio Shack or something kit to put a camera together years ago, but I didn't use it. I've always liked photography. I don't know why, I just have. But three years ago, I have a good friend of mine who said, Michael, you know, you always talk about it. Let's just do it. And mm. me being a uh, no-plug Best Buy guy, of course, I went out and got me a camera, and she taught me a few things, and I started taking photos. You know, first, I think everybody does this. You know, you, you find the cardinal, right? Cardinals are everywhere. You find these things, and you just take basic pictures of them, and that really excited me. But what really turned it up a notch was I, I ran an errand for my for my wife where I had to take some promotional T-shirts down to this church. And it was in downtown Atlanta. And it was in a different side of Atlanta that I, I rarely have seen or I haven't seen in a while. Mm -hmm. And I remember driving through and it was downtrodden. Uh, schools were closed. It was a very depressing scene for me. Um, people walking out, people, homeless people. And on my way back, I just parked the car and I, I got out and started taking photos of people that were just sitting on the street or homeless or the schools. And, and that was, I think, the first time it ever touched my, my soul and my heart. Um, there's a, you know, my eye has always been there, but uh, my heart, it, it enabled me to, it was anger at first because I didn't realize that, you know, I turn my head to the right and you see beautiful downtown Atlanta and all the buildings and progress and everything. But packed in the middle of it or the side of it was this was this very dis depressed area. And the only thing I saw there that I recognized that looked even vaguely uh, updated was um, a MARTA station, which is the uh, metro bus station, right, and train mm -hmm. station, which irritated me because uh, that's how people used to go to work, whether it's the airport and other places. So that's where I really picked up the the soul of the camera, I call it, was there. And that's when I wanted, I knew I wanted to do street photography because I wanted to tell stories. Because I looked and realized that 
you know, people look at uh, people that are on the street and they don't realize you know, everybody's story. Everybody has a story or why it's that way. Uh, some can be self-inflicted, some cannot be, but it, it, it helped a map back to another passion I had, which was African-American history and why the haves and the have-nots and why and, and, and why it looked that way. So that's where I really picked up my love for photography and telling stories. It, most of us walk around uh, with you know headbutts in, uh, looking down at our phones, not making eye contact. Or when we do see people, we maybe pass judgment that, you know, they're too lazy to work or nobody wants to work. They just want a handout, things like that. But there's another story around. So that, that gen was really the one that, that touched me more to open, mm-hmm. open up to that. The the other photography was my backyard. Uh, being a um, parent of three kids uh, that are now older and out of the house, you know, the backyard was just swing sets, fan box, right? Yeah. Boys. <laughs> You know, breaking up fights, all of that. <laughs> and and uh, now that they're out, it, I sit in my backyard in the same backyard and I see, uh, notice things like birds and, and all the things that were there before, but I never really paid attention to. And Ooh. so the part that calms me is sitting in my backyard and taking photos of birds, uh, gosh, hummingbirds for sure, um, and getting to know them. I never really paid attention to it. And it's kind of a peaceful uh, balance for me to when I can shoot in the backyard in a peaceful way and observe animals, you know, whether it's rabbits, it could be chipmunks, it could be, I mean, it could be as uh, vicious as a hawk swooping down and grabbing a rabbit, right? But yeah, um, it, it balances us out. So I, I, I look at myself as I love nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also love uh, the nature of humans and, and street and telling that story as well. I love that. So I have to tell you, probably five years ago or so, I started following a photographer online who specifically photographed the homeless in, Mm -hmm. I believe, like the Phoenix, Arizona area. And I was so captured by these images and so drawn in that it literally changed my life and my perspective and my movement and compassion toward the homeless. Mm -hmm. So this simple seemingly simple form of storytelling, which is the photograph, then drew me to the story of the person and then drew me into greater compassion. And then, you know, more and more, I started learning the stories of these people and my perspective completely widened and completely changed. And I started advocating on behalf of the homeless. And the way today that I interact with the homeless is still so deeply impacted by that. And I just think it's so profound because I'm a storyteller of a written form, Mm -hmm. but I absolutely love the power power that you have to capture and convey and to bring us closer to just one another's humanity. Yeah, it's a process. I, I remember the first shot, a couple of shots that I posted um, maybe a year, a couple of years ago. And one was this gentleman that I, I watched. And at this time, I was I, I wouldn't call myself a street shooter. I was almost wanted to be hidden Mm-hmm. and hide myself from taking a photo. But I remember this guy, he had a he had a, a duffel bag or a backpack. And from what I could see, he had a medical bracelet on. So 
And I watched him for a while. And then he sat in front of this, uh, like it was a Goodwill or a thrift shop. And uh, he was sitting there on a the bench and his head was down. And I was taking the photo and, uh, you know, in my mind thinking uh, selfishly, well, this is good. This is gold, Jerry. This is gold, right? Um, mm -hmm. But as I walked away from that, I felt a big sense of guilt because yeah. I took, but I didn't give. And mm -hmm. I assumed his story when I really could have walked up to him and just, hey, you know, what is your story? And and that bothered me. I remember I wrote my, one of the first blogs on that, and uh, I think it was called My Guilt or something like that. And then it, it caused me more to, you know what, if you're going to take it. So I met other gentlemen and, and people that I actually went up to and talked to and had great conversations. And my whole approach was I make them my model for the day. So you know, it could be a hot day or whatever, but I'm cup of coffee, you know, um, anything to eat. I keep clothes and stuff in the back of my car and I give, and then I just ask questions. I'm not afraid. I think it's just sometimes it's even inviting for them. I learn more and, yeah. um, that helped me quite a bit. So I became more of engaging with people more. And that really helped me because, uh, I think it's a timid way to, you know, hide behind a tree and take something from somebody without really knowing anything about them without giving anything back. So that, that really accelerated that point. And there are times when I can't converse because it might, it just, it, you know, could be a, it could just be the situation. Sure. Um, but in those cases, I do connect because I don't mind when they look up when I take the shot, right? Because that's a connection as well. And, mm -hmm. um, I think looking in the eyes of anybody is looking into their soul and they're looking back into your soul. And so that's that's a photography I like because it does tell a story. And there's some interesting people out there. And I think many of us do not realize how close we could be in that same situation. You know, there's people that it, it, whether it's mental. Right. And that's mm -hmm. majority of it. It could be. Uh, because of uh, an addiction or something. Uh, another third passion of mine is the, uh, the Vietnam War. And I, I, I read so much about that and how people come back from that and never really were able to assimilate back in. Right. Um, right. It was a different kind. And I learned a lot that way. So I, I love it. And I model myself after Gordon Parks, who was one of my favorite photographers. Uh, one of his books called The Choice of Weapons. And the oh. choice of weapons for him was, of course, the camera. And that's how I, I do it to tell stories. I live in a place that's uh, a very nice place to raise kids. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in a sense, affluent. Um, but there are people that are here that um, if more people just paid attention and understood, I think they would uh, they would care for each other uh, more. So tying history into the camera and mm -hmm. uh, compassion and, and understanding and just wanting to make people take pause and think without uh, passing judgment on just what you see. And that's such a lost art in a sense today. I feel like there are people who desire this and who are craving this and moving toward this. But for so long, it felt like it was lost in just quick you know, advertising and in the, in the way that our brains were being formed to see and process and judge. And I really appreciate these movements towards stepping away from that and mm -hmm. towards stepping closer to one another in this. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about and talk to you about a bit is this documentary by Thomas Allen Harris called Through the Lens Darkly. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that documentary and how that shaped and moved you in this? Doing that, um, I call it again my sabbatical. I was looking for more stories on you know, Gordon Parks, and, and there's always iconic photos that I've seen 
uh, whether Gordon Parks took them or whether it's scenes in Birmingham doing the, the sit-ins and things um, like that. But that I wanted to find out more about black photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, at that same time, I was going through a number of photo albums from my family and going through a number of photo albums and award albums of my father. My father passed away when he was 53. Wow. I, was, I was 26, 25 at the time. Um, he was in the Air Force, and I knew he did a lot of good things because I saw the plaques on the wall and that, but we didn't discuss his work. Of course, you didn't at that point. Mm-hmm. But I started going through that and seeing photos of him and our family photos. And of course, I remember all of the photos growing up with the Christmas and you know cowboy dressing, that kind of things. But I started seeing photos of my my parents prior to them even knowing each other, like existing at high school or doing things. My mom was like homecoming queen and all this stuff. And and at the same time, I'm reading a lot about racial discrimination and the tough time in the 40s and 50s and 30s. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you can read so much of that and you think, oh, that's so devastating. It was so awful. It must have been so tough. But then it made me think, you know what, regardless of what African-Americans went through, when they came home, they were able to de-stress, unwind, go in their own community go, you know, normal parties, normal get-togethers, proms, formals, all these things. And um, it just made me curious. And so I started going through that. And then I found this through the lens darkly, which spoke to that. It said that, you know, there are a lot of secrets in the photo albums of African-American families. And it's um, it tells so many stories. And it goes back to the fact that the most the most photographed person back in the day uh, was Frederick Douglass and it, and how African-Americans looked at photography because it was capturing something that uh, to even look in the eye of the camera. You know, you could even look in the eye of another white person at a certain time. But when there were photos being taken, they could look at the camera and it really told that, you know what, I am a person, uh, regardless of how if they were being photographed nude, you know, of course, against their wishes or whatever. So it told the story of photography back then and how blacks wanted to be depicted in a positive way, because uh, with the Jim Crow and, you know, reconstruction, right, deconstruction, the images that were put out, um, um, you know, the blackface, right, the menstrual, all that um, was for negative purposes. And that was by design. And so you, whenever you saw a black person, whether you saw them in a commercial or anything like that, it was always depicted in a negative way. The way they looked, you know, their lips, the color, uh, the way they acted. And um, the camera for the African-American community was to present a different side. We can dress well. We have pride. We have families. We do normal things, even though we're excluded from the majority of things. But we still we're a people. And mm-hmm. that was something that really, really captured me because I looked at it from our family. And then it told another story. For many years, I looked at photos and didn't ask who they were. Right? But it yeah. tells a story of if I looked at my ancestry, I tried that too. And I didn't get I didn't get far. It mm-hmm. really was frustrating. But there are photos that there are people, uh, my grandparents and all that were very fascinating. Right. My grand my granddad owned property. My granddad had a motorcycle. My uncle had a filling station. Uh, my mom grew up in Detroit. Her stepmom had a restaurant and a hairdresser. Right. Uh, she went to the same church that Aretha Franklin went to. Things yeah. like that that told the stories. So. Uh, uh, that movie really resonated with me because it, it actually, I lived it in a way. And it it showed why it was so important um, to depict uh, African-American people in normal situations in a positive way. And it would explain to people today why um, blackface offends us, right? Or or it is offensive and people don't understand that. 
right. because they don't understand why it was created to dehumanize. Right. That's how that was all by design to do that. Mm-hmm. It told me a story and it made me related to something that I knew. That's why when I, I do courses on archiving and people to uh, preserve more of their history, and I'm I'm gonna have this, I don't want to call it a project, but it is to get more people in the city of Marietta, where I grew up, um, because I'm on the board of directors of the Marietta Museum of History, and it's lacks African-American participation in the building of that city um, when it was there. And so I'm trying to get more people to bring out their photos, right? There were a lot of uh, housing projects that were there and thriving, and I knew that were there, but they're gone now because of gentrification. And if we don't tell that story or show that story, it's gone. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. So you're on the board of the History Museum? The Marietta Museum of History, yes. Marietta, Georgia. Okay, in Marietta. So tell us about that, because I understand that you have quite a passion for history. Yes. um, I grew up in Marietta. My dad was in the Air Force. We uh, moved to Marietta from Smyrna, Georgia, which was maybe five miles, six miles away in 1965. And uh, we had a house built uh, in Marietta and I grew up there. Uh, My first grade, I went to an all black school right down the street from us. That was really fun. It was good. Uh, Across the street from our house were projects. I didn't understand that at the time, but again, I don't, there were a lot of things I didn't understand at the time. Um, But the second grade, my dad told us, my sister and I, that we were going to another school and it was um, about six, seven miles away and it was an all white school. And uh, I didn't know why. I didn't ask why. You didn't ask why. You just said, okay, fine. So I did. And um, went to Hickory Hills Elementary and it was a fantastic, had a great time, great people, still have friends of that today. But that tells the story of Marietta because I never, uh, in 65 on up, I never experienced any racism or anything like that, anything at all, at all. Um, Mm -hmm. The people that I met at Hickory Hills, the white people, they were very friendly. Um, We had a good time. Um, Teachers were very nice. Um, There were about three or four of us from our neighborhood that went to the school, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it it was it went well. I, I, I didn't have any bad feelings from it. Actually, the 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 part that was the toughest was dealing with our our own community, which. set us apart is like we were better than everybody else because we spoke differently or we, we felt we were and we weren't. My parents just wanted us to get a better education. But mm-hmm. moving forward, Marietta was a, a great city. You think about it compared to maybe five, 10 miles around. Marietta was isolated in that way. There was Dobbins Air Force Base. There was Lockheed Factory. And um, so I never really experienced anything in a, in a bad way. Not at all. Yeah. And so my parents probably did and, and my grandparents, but they never spoke of it. So so I was always interested in it, but there was a museum there, Marietta Museum of History. And then there was another museum that was separate that was the Gone with the Wind Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was never interested um, because I thought they were connected. And I felt, what do they have to, what does it have to do with me? Right. I just didn't feel right. that. But they were separate. So there was an opportunity for me about two years ago where um, Amy Reed is like a curator there. Um, and she's been working hard to try to get more African-American artifacts and participation and everything. And so she approached me to moderate a panel um, of people that were grew up in Marietta. And there were people that were my mom's age, uh, about 10 years older than me, 20 years older than me. And then it was just a, a wide range. And I didn't want to moderate it at first because I'm like, it wouldn't be fair for me to sit here and discuss how easy it was and how much fun I had. I went to all different types of concerts from 
you know, the cool in the game to Leonard Skinner, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up and, and, and that, so I didn't felt it, would, felt it was fair, but she goes, no, you'd be really good. I, I'm, I moderate on panels at work and in my tech, in the technology field and that. So I did. And what I found out was that uh, Miss Jenkins, the lady that my mom's age was, they were telling all the same stories. Marietta wasn't a very good city. There wasn't a lot of blatant racism. There were, you know, places to go and not, but it wasn't, you know, everybody got along well. And then the next gentleman that was like 20 years old, he said the same thing. And it came all the way down to there was a reason. And then it made me curious about why. So I was teaching classes there. She asked me to. And I taught the transatlantic slave trade course there. And then I taught another course on the Reconstruction after the Civil War. And I focused on Marietta, utilizing some of the papers and uh, some of the uh, thesis that people wrote about it and found Mm -hmm. out that during the Reconstruction period, Marietta was even different than other places. Um, It was very downtrodden. And so people worked together because everybody was poor and starving and that galvanized the city and it just helped build the togetherness. And there were a lot of uh, union uh, spies and people uh, in Marietta, but everybody learned to exist the right way. So it started a long, a long time ago before me. And so that really opened my eyes to it. And uh, I learned more about the projects that were built there. Uh, when they were built, when Roosevelt um, set aside the, uh, I guess it was a great deal, it was to do that. And so I started getting more involved in telling that story because in America, you can't tell the story of the progress and the success of uh, America without the work of people that were free labor enslaved people, right? You can't, you can't tell it. Right. Um, and so in Marietta, you can't tell the story of Marietta and the, and the greatness of it and how it was built and all that without the participation and of African Americans, people that you know maybe were you know did the manual labor or maybe did you know that were the maids or all these other things, but there are people that were doing great things there too as well that I never knew. My father was involved in a lot of things that I didn't know. He was in the Air Force, but he was also on the Housing Authority. There were other people that were doing things, so it really brought me um, a, a better uh, awareness. And so uh, we've been building and trying to get more people and more artifacts into the museum to tell that complete story. And they asked me to be on the board to help create that. So I've been involved in a number of events that we have, whether it's teaching, taught a course on post-traumatic slave syndrome off of uh, Dr. Joy DeGroo's book several weeks ago. And then I've done courses on the Through the Lens Darkly type to people to share their artifacts, to tell the story, to present those, to to put them on display. So that's that's how I got involved with that. And it's, it's worked out really well. And it's something that we're doing every month. Uh, it's it's very exciting. So I, I do appreciate working that in my own uh, in my own hometown. That sounds amazing. So what are your classes like? So every month you teach a class, are they different or do you sometimes have a popular one that you pick back up and teach? I tell you, the first one is probably the most memorable. And that was the one that I did on the transatlantic slave trade. And many people start their history or understanding of history of slavery in America, but they don't pick up on you know the middle passage or what happened in Africa or why. And so I, I went back right. to do that back in the Portuguese and the Dutch and the Spanish. And I did this in a way that there was a book, there's a gentleman, his name is uh, Dr. Daniel Black. And Dr. Daniel Black teaches at a school, I think it's Morehouse. I'm going to get it wrong. He's going to be angry at me. But it's called, the book is called The Coming. And it's a novel uh, that Dr. Black did. And the book, I bought a book for everybody that was in the class. And the reason I bought this book was I read, gosh, almost 20, I'm looking at them now, 20 plus books on slavery, the middle passage. And, and all of that. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. But out of all those books, this book, The Coming, focused on the positive of what people in Africa were, how they were living prior, right? Yes. The the villages, the religion, uh, that there were people who were good. There were people that were bad. There were people that were, you know, that were gay. There were people, but it just sets the stage that they were just like any others, anybody else. They had healers, doctors, storytellers. Yes. um, How parents... and. It talks about that. And then, and let me mention this, it's Clark. It's Clark Atlanta University. And uh, it it tells the story of a group of people and how they existed. And um, it was very exciting. And then it told the story of what happened. Uh, People became lax. They trusted more. Uh, They trusted people more. And that's when, you know, other villages conquered other villages and they were stolen. Right. And um, and it tells a story of how they were stolen, what happened, how they focused on eliminating the people that told the stories, eliminating people that had the power knowing certain things. But then they stole people and they marched them from their village to the coast, right? The Ivory Coast mm-hmm. is what they call it. The story of how they survived that, that was horrible. And not just getting to the barracoons on the coast, but how they stayed in those factories until a ship came and picked them up. Uh, they could have been there for months, right? Uh, when the ship came, it, it took sometimes two, three months to load the ship. And the ship would go up the coast to pick up different groups because they did not want to have the same people from one group because they could collaborate. They can talk. They can, you know. But, so it told the story of how that happened, but how people survived, how they survived uh, the village being decimated, how they survived the walk to the coast, how they survived staying in the barracoon. Once they were sold, how they survived on the ship while it sat there waiting to be filled. And then the actual passage, you know, across the ocean going to, you know, whether it was Barbados, or Brazil, Cuba, right? Haiti. Right. And then the next step. And it showed the strength of that. So imagine, just imagine the strength of living through all of that. And then when you get to your final destination, right, then Mm -hmm. the horror starts all over again. But you still survive. You still maintain some of your culture. You tell those stories. You learn how to um, mix and communicate. And so right. the course went really, really well. I went through the, the coming. It was a positive story all along the way of the power and the strength and how we still survive and how we still survive, given the less of everything. And mm-hmm. um, I had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Black read the first few chapters of this, and it was powerful. And I started my course off reading the first chapter to the mm-hmm. class. And so it was a very, very important part. I expected the class to be majority of African-Americans people. But it wasn't. It was majority yeah. of white people, which was astonishing, but it was great. They wanted to learn. And my uh, approach was, you know, I'm not teaching it from a point of anger. I'm just saying you got to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. I even purchased a photo of how um, famous painting of people that were stacked in the uh, bottom of the ship, right? Uh, just on top mm-hmm. of each other and showed that I had, you know, you have to be you have to be uncomfortable. You have to be very uncomfortable to learn um, mm-hmm. how, right? The feeding, the uh, the rapes, the the dying, all of that. We even learned something in, important that uh, one of the most popular songs, uh, Amazing Grace, uh, was written by John Newton, who was a slave trader. And he actually mm-hmm. wrote the song when he was in a storm and uh, barely made it through the storm. But he was asking for, you know, God for strength to just let him get through this storm. And he wrote Amazing Grace. When you listen to the lyrics of it, it's, it's definitely from that point of view. But he, you know, he became a pastor, but he still stayed in the slave trading. But Look at think of the power of that song, which is one of the most common, one of the most strongest songs in the African-American um, community in church. Right. But it was written by John Newton, who was a slave trader. And um, 
you know, it doesn't mean you you like the song less. It just tells you the strength of taking something and making it better for the situation that you're in. Wow. I actually feel a little sick to my stomach, though, on that. Like physiologically, I feel nauseated hearing that about that song. It's it, it, it does put that in you. I and I struggled. I used to struggle at saying it, um, yeah. especially uh, when I addressed I addressed our church a couple of times. I did the um, anniversary sermon, not sermon, but not be a sermon if I did it. It was a conversation. Um, uh-huh. I just want people to know that. And they and, and they just take pause. And it bothers me a little bit. Um yeah. I mentioned my father passed away uh, when he was uh, 53. That was one of his songs that he wanted to on his uh, his right. uh, funeral, right? But yeah. but I think people just need to understand that and just know it, right? It doesn't. Uh, the words are strong, but it wasn't written for that. And that goes for another thing. There's a book I'm reading right now. It's called um, The Compromise. What what is it? The Color of Light. Oh, yeah. Jamar Tisby. We're going to read that in a few months. Yes. And yes, you know, religion. Oh, my gosh. It's that makes me angry because Mm -hmm. it it tells the story, but it's used for a certain way. Right. Um, Right. Religion was used to enslave or to, you know, Mm -hmm. the the story. In this book, I just read it last night because I just was it was recommended me yesterday. And of course, I immediately went and got it on on a nook and ordered it. Right. But Right. It, it's um, it's an, it's important because there's a lot of complicity in, um, in the Christian faith or any faith. Right. Because just because you feel a certain way, but if you watch it happen, what does that make you? Right. What is it? So um, that that was something that, that does bother me. It does. I look at it now so much different. And I don't go around telling everybody. But I mean, if it comes up, I said, you know, just know your history. It's nothing. Right. Uh, Mm-hmm. Just understand it a little bit more. A lot of those songs were just retooled uh, to for strength, right? It was retooled for right. strength, and it, that strength got them through it. But it's okay to know, right? Just like the Star Spangled Banner or some of these other songs. Just you know, don't just take something because somebody gave it to you. Lo- know a little bit about it, right? So that was my favorite class. The other was doing the class on um, the Freedmen's Bureau after uh, the Civil War, um, and then. Uh, taking that on up to, you know, through Jim Crow and some of the other uh, time frames that uh, happened. So I love that. And uh, the next class, we're going to we're going to do more of that because people are very interested in they're knowing African-American history in Marietta, but they love to know more about what's going on in, in Marietta uh, and what's yeah. going on in Marietta. And so, you know, I'm like, that's great, but let's, you know, let's expand it a little bit as well. Um, right. My whole phrase is uh, there's a Ghana word, Sankofa, which means mm-hmm. return and get it, uh, which to me is akin to like James Baldwin. James Baldwin is my favorite author. It's like yes. his whole approach of not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it's faced. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't seen um, I Am Not Your Negro, it's classic. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. classic. So um, another book I want to do. To, to speak on is a book called Slavery by Another Name. And Douglas Blackman wrote that book. And it's it tells a story that slavery didn't end in the sense that we think. People don't understand that. There's a Netflix movie called 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and that explains the story as a whole. And that, again, that's telling people that you don't really understand the prison system, all of that. A lot of that's by design, right? And then, uh, yes. Um, and you have to understand that. And that's uh, that's part of uh, of me, Jen, is that I reference myself to uh, what is the movie? The Green Mile. 
right? Um, yeah, when John Coffey was talking about sometimes it feels, it feels like there's shards of glass in your head, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes knowing so much is that way. It is a yes. burden. It is a huge mm -hmm. burden and it, it hurts. And mm -hmm. the best way I can relieve that is by picking the camera up or telling a story or uh, history story or recommending a book or doing things like this, right? I, I've been wanting to do podcasts for a while, but I've, I realized that I, I'm not good at doing them by myself. <laughs> so this is another way. So this is, that's pretty much, you know, what I want people to understand. There's a Jane Elliott. Are you familiar with Jane Elliott? Yep. The blue eye, brown eye. I, yes. I heard something on, I think it was uh, NPR, where when she's addressing a group of white people, and I think it's really important. And she said to them, she goes, I want I want you to stand up if you would like to take the place of a black person. If you had a choice. Mm -hmm. Right. She goes, no, I'm serious. I want you to stand up where all this is going on and what you're saying, everything's this. Would you take the place of a black person? And that told yeah. the whole story. And I think that's what people need to do It's the whole thing of uh, a time to kill. Right. When uh, mm -hmm. close your eyes and you explain a situation. And then you explain it to look at it as being a white person or a black person or um, a Latino person. Right? And mm -hmm. so those are the things that I, I look at. I read a lot, as you can tell. Um, yes. I read way too much. No, I know what you can't read. No, no, you can't. <laughs> that's not well, possible. <laughs> no, but 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 I will say it's something I will never do again. But I, I did listen to um, the book, The Invisible Man. On Audible while running, and that's not good to do. Um, it's good to do, but uh, my gosh, I, I, you know, you lose track. <laughs> right, I could right. have been run over, but uh, right. <laughs> um, I mean, that's some pretty deep stuff. But um, I yeah. do think people need to read more, and if they don't read more, you know what? There's people like us who love to tell that story. You don't have to read everything, but at least know. Don't let somebody just tell you something. Read it for yourself. That's all. Thing. Yeah. Or look at a picture and and, and form an opinion for yourself. So you were saying that you were surprised to find that there were a lot of white people in attendance in these history classes. Yes. How was that experience in terms of what do you think is motivating people? What are you seeing? Are you seeing an increase in interest? Are you seeing an increase in openness in small pockets? What is your sense on that? I am. Uh, and again, I was shocked by it. I will say this. At first, I was angry because Ooh. I expected to see my people, right? Yeah. And I was angry, uh, but only for a second. I don't, I'm just like, well, wait a minute. This is a great opportunity. And the questions and the interests and, you know, the, the wanting to know the books. My mentor is Dr. Thomas Scott. He's the president professor emeritus at uh, Kennesaw State University. He was uh -huh. my professor when I went to uh, Kennesaw many, many, many years ago. And I loved his class because he told so many stories, but he's well known. He's written so many books and he's helped prod me alone. And he, he's, uh, people know who he is and he's been trying to tell the same story too, but it's different from him telling it than me telling it, um, because mm -hmm. of the color, right? But it's very interesting that I've had even my fourth grade teacher come to one of my classes. People, it's, uh, they want to know and wow. I love that and I want them to know and to go back. Because they don't, because history is written by people that benefit the most from it. They don't understand why it's been this way, but they want to know. And so the questions have been very good, especially the topics that we have now. There's a own race, um, the, the popular book that uh, stamped from the beginning. Um, yes, that's on our list, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That guy is amazing. Abraham, yes. Abraham X. Kende. 
And it explains, yeah. you know, race is a, is a made up concept. There is no race, right? It, yeah. It's important for people to know where that came from and why. And right. it's a big book. It, it's something you got to take some time to. But I loved it, Dylan, in that book and, and uh, telling a story. And, and the people in the class want to hear more about that, too, about what group do they fall in? Because he breaks the groups down into you're either a segregationist, which you blame blacks for all the bad that's happened. Or you're anti-racist and you say that racism created all the badness that's going on or you're in a simulus and you have a little bit of both. And he breaks mm -hmm. that down in a very open way to make you look at yourself and go, well, how do you feel about this? And, yeah. and so I love to spend more time on that. And um, uh, people want to do another class on the coming. And I actually had Dr. Black agree to come up and um, meet with the class and do his reading because I, I can't do it like him. I killed the that's word. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but um, that's what I'd want to do more on. And uh I want to get more kids involved. I, I'm, I'm, I met with the superintendent of schools uh, last week and trying to work on getting more African-American history in, in the school system, whether it's, you know, community or yeah. the, even for the parents, not just the kids. Because uh, the article in the USA Today uh, yesterday um, explains that there's a problem in teaching it and uh, the people that are teaching it and uh, – why the need to is to teach it. It's, just, it's uncomfortable, but you need to go through it. And that's what I want to do mm -hmm. more of. So I started homeschooling my children uh, two years ago because of medical things. And so we just needed to be at home. And one of the things that I really have focused on and committed to was teaching history to them very differently than I learned. So I'm really learning alongside them. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I wanted to teach them first and foremost was the history of the African nations and how they emerged. And I wanted them to have a worldview and a concept of people that was humanizing, that was uplifting. These are doctors. These are kings. These are, oh, yeah. you know, teachers and, and yeah. writers. But that was really important to me to teach them that so that then when I brought them to the history of the United States and we deal with the slave trade and the early colonies and all of these things, they aren't just getting introduced to black people through the perspective of slavery. Right. And right. there's such a power. And I think it's so important that we do that. But I think within the educational system at large, we're so far off from that. And oh, man, it's a hot mess. And I want to shake the system up in this regard. So I'm really excited to hear that within your sphere of influence that you're working to implement change. But how do we even change these things when you have the majority white culture largely in charge of curriculum, largely in charge of academia? They've written the history. They've written the stories. And as a result, we have tremendous ignorance. Well, I, I think... You know, we can use a negative sometimes, right? Uh, just uh, this past month, that was African-American History Month, right? There were so many missteps along the way of oh. of uh, teachers, you know, hey, let's do this. Let's let this person, this black person be a runaway slave or let's do it. And they don't know how to teach it because it's not taught to them. And another thing right. is if there is a lack of uh, African-American teachers, then that's another issue as well, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's got to change. The parents have got to ask for it. And I think the only way is by educating and the, the, the adult classes and the churches have to do a big part. And that's another thing, too. Um, mm -hmm. Again, Dr. King said the most segregated hour is 11 o'clock on a Sunday. Right. And it's still. Amen. Day. And so yep. it has to start there. 
I know that my kids in school got a really nice dose of learning. I was impressed with some of the books that they brought home and and that they are interested in. Even my, my daughter, uh, they even brought her friends to some of my classes and they, they talk about this. And my kids, they have questions because they're, they're biracial, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, but it's opened their eyes as well. And all their friends are from a different country and all too in this neighborhood. And that's something that, that's really been great too, because the kids are the, are the key. They're the, they're going to be the ones, but the parents are going to have to also be, play a part in it as well. You got to go back and get it, and you got to go back and feel bad and acknowledge mm-hmm. uh, of, of the bad that was done, uh, because it's it's like starting a marathon. One group gets to start, but you don't let the other group start till the the first group is halfway, and that's just never going to work. And that's where we're at. Right. So I think right. I think I think by telling these stories, um, you use what's going on in the news. Like for instance, I use the Green Book to explain yeah. to people. I didn't see the movie, and I can't speak to the movie, but I didn't. I don't want to see the movie because I don't. That's not telling the story of the Green Book that I know. Right. The um, Right. The green book that Mr. Green wrote for the purpose of it. I use these things to tell, but I think that if we get to the teachers, I know a lot of charter schools are open to it, but again, it's got to be in a, in the, uh, the education system and it has to be demanded. It's, it's going to take a while. We okay. Definitely, yes. Uh, yes. We definitely can use this uh, tsunami of ignorance that's going on right now uh, oh. to the betterment because it, it at least opens people's eyes more. I think if they pull back everything and say, what is the real issue here? It will disturb them, but it yes. will be revealed to them. But what do you do, right? What can I do today to make the world a better place? And that's that's what I do through my camera lens and through my teaching and uh, my speaking and, and everything that I do each day. And I, I really love the opportunity that you've presented me to at least speak through this and look forward uh, to picking different topics. I'm always willing and able to do that. And I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. This has been really awesome. And we have some really good starting points for anybody who's listening and is curious and has been thinking, I know there's something more that I need to learn and that I need to do. Michael has made some really great suggestions on books and we're doing our 12 books in 12 months series as well, where we're taking people through this slowly starting and then working our way into historical study. And I'm excited about the potential within this and just seeing people move more more and and not get discouraged and do nothing right? right because the tendency i think for people is to say oh it's just such a mess what can i do it's a dumpster fire right but actually no your your perspective is perfect on this let's take these as opportunities to learn more to teach more and to engage more. Right. So where can we find your photography? My website is www.mwtphotography.com. Um, there is a link to my blog on the website. Perfect. Occasionally, I will. It depends on how strongly I feel about something. But usually you can tell when I write a blog, it's something that really pins the nerve. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will get to talk again soon. So I'm excited about that. Look forward to it. Thank you, Jen. Thank you.